Jesus, uh, we gather in the shadow of your cross tonight. And I just want to ask that tonight you would open our eyes so that we could, yes, indeed, see the love in your eyes. So as we sit with this story of your love and your passion for us, uh, open our eyes that we may see in a fresh way, open our ears that we may hear in a fresh way this thing that you have accomplished for us. Pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. We're going to do a little a little switcheroo here. I think it's helpful sometimes to name what's happening in the room instead of being awkward about what's happening in the room. Um, if we have not met, my name is Kyle, and I get to be one of the pastors here, and I'm super thankful to be with you here for this Good Friday. And this Good Friday gathering will uh, include something called a service of Tenebrae. So if you're one of the readers for Tenebrae, you could come forward and get situated. Um, and uh, so what is a, a, a tenebrae service? It, tenebrae is a Latin word that means shadow or darkness. And it's a reading uh, of, the, of John's gospel and his account of Jesus's betrayal and crucifixion and death and all of the events there. And that's a curious thing to do because we don't often sit and listen to that much scripture in our personal lives, and we certainly don't do that on a regular basis uh, as a community, but we think there's some value to sitting with that story, and so we've asked some readers. And, and the way that it works is, as each reading goes by, a candle is extinguished, and we're drawn further and further and further into the darkness of the story. And, and really, we're kind of invited to see the darkness inside of each of us um, that leads to that leads to this moment. And so um, I just want to invite you to listen and hear. At the end, we'll sit in silence. And I also say that to let you know that that's on purpose. Um, so that if it's not like, well, somebody should be talking now, that'll be on purpose. Um, we'll worship in silence at the end. And so let's listen together. Jesus went forth with his disciples across the Kidron Valley where there was a garden, which he and his disciples entered. Now Judas, who betrayed him, also knew the place, for Jesus often met there with his disciples. So Judas, pro pro procuring a band of soldiers and some officers from the chief priests and the Pharisees, went there with lanterns and torches and weapons. Then Jesus, knowing all that was to befall him, came forward and said to them, Whom do you seek? They answered him, Jesus of Nazareth. Jesus said to them, I am he. Judas, who betrayed him, was standing with them. When he said to them, I am he, they drew back and they fell to the ground. Again, he asked them, Whom do you seek? And they said, Jesus of Nazareth. Jesus answered, I told you that I am he, so if you seek me, let these men go. This was to fulfill the word which he had spoken. I did not lose a single one of those 
whom you gave me. Then Simon Peter, having a sword, drew it and struck the high priest's slave and cut off his right ear. The slave's name was Malchus. Jesus said to Peter, put your, put your sword into its sheath. Shall I not drink the cup which the Father has given me? The first candle is extinguished. So the band of soldiers and their captain and the officers of the Judean authority seized Jesus and bound him. First they led him to Annas, for he was the father-in-law of Caiaphas, who was high priest that year. It was Caiaphas who had given counsel to the religious authorities that it was expedient that one man should die for the people. And the second candle is extinguished. Simon Peter followed Jesus, and so did another disciple. As this disciple was known to the high priest, he entered the court of the high priest along with Jesus, while Peter stood outside at the door. So the other disciple, who was well known to the high priest, went out and spoke to the woman who guarded the gate and brought Peter in. The woman who guarded the gate said to Peter, Are you not also one of these man's disciples? He said, I am not. Now the servants and the officers had made a charcoal fire because it was cold, and they were standing and warming themselves. Peter also was with them, standing and warming himself. The third candle is extinguished. The high priest then questioned Jesus about his disciples and his teaching. Jesus answered him, I have spoken openly to the world. I have always taught in synagogues and in the temple, where all Jewish people come together. I have said nothing secretly. Why do you ask me? Ask those who have heard me what I said to them. They know what I said. When he had said this, one of the officers standing by Jesus struck hand, saying, Is that how you answer the high priest? Jesus answered him, If I have spoken wrongly, bear witness to the wrong. But if I have spoken rightly, why do you strike me? Annas then sent him bound to Caiaphas, the high priest. The fourth candle is extinguished. Now Simon Peter was standing and warming himself. They said to him, Are you not also one of his disciples? He denied it and said, I am not. One of the servants of the high priest, a kinsman of the man whose ear Peter had cut off, asked, Did I not see you in the garden with him? Peter again denied it, and at once the cock crowed. The fifth candle is extinguished. Then they led Jesus from the house of Caiaphas to Pilate's headquarters. It was early. They themselves did not enter the headquarters, so they might not be defiled, but might eat the Passover. So Pilate went out to them and said, What accusation do you bring against this man? They answered him, If this man were not an evildoer, we would not have handed him over. Pilate said to them, Take him yourself and judge him by your own law. The religious authorities said to him, It is not lawful for us to put any man to death. This was to fulfill the word which Jesus had spoken to show by what death he was to die. 
and the sixth candle is extinguished. Pilate entered the headquarters again and called Jesus and said to him, Are you the king of the Jews? Jesus answered, Do you say this of your own accord, or did others say it to you about me? Pilate answered, Am I a Jew? Your nation and chief priests have handed you over to me. What have you done? Jesus answered, My kingship is not of this world. If my kingship were of this world, my servants would fight, that I might not be handed over to the religious authorities. But my kingship is not from the world. Pilate said to him, So you are a king. And Jesus answered, You say that I am a king. For this I was born, and for this I have come into the world, to bear witness to the truth. Everyone who is of the truth hears my voice. Pilate said to him, What is truth? The seventh candle is extinguished. After Pilate had said this, he went to the religious authorities again and told them, I find no crime in him. But you have a custom that I should release one man for you at the Passover. Will you have me release for you the king of the Jews? They cried out again, Not this man, but Barabbas. Now Barabbas was a robber. The eighth candle is extinguished. Then Pilate took Jesus and scourged him. And the soldiers plaited a crown of thorns and put it on his head and arrayed him in a purple robe. They came to him saying, Hail, King of the Jews, and struck him with their hands. Pilate went out again and said to them, See, I am bringing him out to you, that you may know that I find no crime in him. So Jesus came out, wearing the crown of thorns and the purple robe. Pilate said to them, Behold the man. When the chief priests and the officers saw him, they cried out, Crucify him! Crucify him! Pilate said to them, Take him yourself and crucify him, for I find no crime in him. The religious authorities answered him, We have a law, and by that law he ought to die, because he has made himself the Son of God. When Pilate heard these words, he was, he was the more afraid. He entered the headquarters again, and he said to Jesus, Where are you from? But Jesus gave no answer. Pilate therefore said to him, You will not speak to me? Do you not know that I have the power to release you and the power to crucify you? Jesus answered him, You would have no power over me unless it had been given to you from above. Therefore, he who delivered me to you has the greater sin. The ninth candle is extinguished. Upon this, Pilate sought to release him. But the religious authorities cried out, If you release this man, you are not Caesar's friend. Everyone who makes himself a king sets himself against Caesar. When Pilate heard these words, he brought Jesus out and sat down on the judgment seat at a place called the pavement, 
and in Hebrew, Gebetha. Now it was the day of preparation of the Passover. It was about the sixth hour. And he said to the religious authorities, Behold your king. They cried out, Away with him. Away with him. Crucify him. Pilate said to them, Shall I crucify your king? The chief priests answered, We have no king but Caesar. And they handed him over to them to be crucified. And the tenth candle is extinguished. So they took Jesus, and he went out bearing his own cross to the place called the place of the skull, which is called in Hebrew, Golgotha. There they crucified him with two others, one on either side and Jesus between them. Pilate also wrote a title and put it on the cross. It read, Jesus of Nazareth, the King of the Jews. Many of the Judeans read this title, for the place where Jesus was crucified was near the city, and it was written in Hebrew, in Latin, and in Greek. The Jewish chief priests then said to Pilate, Do not write the king of the Jews. But this man said, I am the king of the Jews, Pilate answered. What I have written, I have written. The eleventh candle is extinguished. When the soldiers had crucified Jesus, they took his garments and made four parts, one for each soldier, also his tunic. But the tunic was without seam, woven from top to bottom, so they said to one another, Let us not tear it, but cast lots for it, to see whose it shall be. This was to fulfill the scripture, They parted my garments among them, and for my clothing they cast lots. The twelfth candle is extinguished. So the soldiers did this. But standing by the cross of Jesus were his mother and his mother's sister, Mary, the wife of Clopas, and Mary Magdalene. When Jesus saw his mother and the disciple whom he loved standing near, he said to his mother, Woman, behold your son. Then he said to the disciple, Behold your mother. And from that hour the disciple took her to his own home. The thirteenth candle is extinguished. After this, Jesus, knowing that all was now finished, said to fulfill the scripture, I thirst. A bowl of vinegar stood there, so they put a sponge full of the vinegar on hyssop and held it to his mouth. When Jesus had received the vinegar, he said, It is finished. And he bowed his head and gave up his spirit. And the fourteenth candle is extinguished. Since it was the day of preparation, in order to prevent the bodies from remaining on the cross on the Sabbath, for the Sabbath was a high day, the religious authorities asked Pilate that their legs might be broken and that they may be taken away. So the soldiers came 
and they broke the legs of the first and of the other who had been crucified with him. But when they came to Jesus and saw that he was already dead, they did not break his legs. But one of the soldiers pierced his side with a spear, and at once there came out blood and water. He who saw it bore witness. His testimony is true, and he knows that he tells the truth, that you also may believe. For these things took place that the scripture might be fulfilled. Not a bone of him was broken. And again, another scripture says, they shall look on him whom they pierced. The Christ candle is extinguished. After this, Joseph of Arimathea, who was a disciple of Jesus, but secretly, for fear of the religious authorities, asked Pilate that he might take away the body of Jesus. And Pilate gave him leave, so he came and took away his body. Nicodemus also, who had at first come to him by night, came bringing a mixture of myrrh and aloes, about a hundred pounds weight. They took the body of Jesus and bound it in linen cloths with the spices, as is the burial custom of the Jews. Now in the place where he was crucified there was a garden, and in the garden a new tomb where no one had ever been laid. So because of the Jewish day of preparation, as the tomb was close at hand, they laid Jesus there. the depth of the riches and wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments and how inscrutable his ways. For who has known the mind of the Lord or who has been his counselor? Or who has given a gift to him that he might be repaid? For from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be glory forever. 
May the meditations of my heart and the words of my mouth be pleasing to you, O Yahweh, our God and our Redeemer. Amen. The Big Book of Bible Difficulties is a 624-page volume that promises, according to the back cover, clear and concise answers to every major Bible difficulty from Genesis to Revelation. Now, the Bible is a long book and full of difficulties, so a book that promises clear and concise answers sounds like a good thing. The Bible is a really big book, and life is short. And most of us are just trying to make it through the day. We love concise. We love clear. That's why we love tweets and Instagram posts with scripture verses and quotes from Christian authors. It's why we love sound bites from our favorite preachers on the radio. Because at the right moment, these clear and concise little bits can keep us going. They can give us the dose of hope and peace and joy that we are looking for in the midst of life's busyness. The only problem is that the Bible isn't all that interested in being concise and clear. Quite the opposite. The Bible tends to delight in ambiguity, intention, and even outright contradiction. See, that's the thing. People will tell you that the Bible doesn't contradict itself, but it does. I like to say that the Bible never contradicts itself except when it means to. The Bible tends to delight in these things, things that cannot be explained concisely, things that if we try to make them clear, sometimes make them false. Every once in a while, every once in a while, the Bible will tell us exactly what it's thinking. It'll throw out an answer that gives us hope and peace in the midst of life's joys and difficulties. But just as often, just as often, the Bible invites us into mystery which is exactly what lies at the heart of Good Friday, mystery. At the heart of Good Friday is a tension, is an ambiguity, is a contradiction, a contradiction best expressed in this passage we've been exploring this Lenten season, Exodus 34, verses 6 and 7. In Exodus 34, Moses meets God on the mountain, and God introduces himself to Moses this way, Yahweh, the Lord, the God of compassion and mercy, I am slow to anger and filled with unfailing love and faithfulness. I lavish unfailing love to a thousand generations. I forgive iniquity, rebellion, and sin, but I do not excuse the guilty. I lay the sins of the parents upon their children and, and grandchildren. The entire family is affected even in the third and the fourth generations. In Exodus 34, we find that God has a name, and God is not God's name, nor 
is the Lord God's name. They are his titles. God's name isn't God any more than my name is Mr. God's name is Yahweh. It means I am who I am or I will be who I will be. John Mark Comer, an author that we like a great deal around here, says that one of the ways to translate this Hebrew phrase is whatever I am, I will be. Meaning whatever God is like, he is going to be that way consistently. He's shifting, stable, 24-7. In Exodus 34, we find that Yahweh is consistently, unshiftingly compassionate and merciful and slow to anger. He is consistently and unrelentingly filled with steadfast, loyal love and faithfulness. And all this is well and good until we get to the last two ways that Yahweh describes himself. He says, I forgive iniquity, rebellion, and sin. This is great news. When we sin, when we fail, when we go our own way, Yahweh is willing to forgive. He also says, though, doesn't he? He also says, I do not excuse the guilty. That's also great news. It means that school shooters and terrorists and rapists and war criminals and murderers and abusers and all of those who commit evil will be held to account. The trick is, how is it that Yahweh is both? How can he be consistently, unshiftingly forgiving? I forgive iniquity, rebellion, and sin. And just, I do not excuse the guilty. How can he do both of these things at the same time? How can he be unshiftingly both of these things? I mean, does he choose to be forgiving uh, in like the first half of the day and then like hold people accountable in the second half of the day? I mean, if he did that, if he did these things inconsistently, what kind of God would he be? If God promises to forgive but actually doesn't, is he not just a tyrant, a bully, sending people to damnation willy-nilly? I mean, wouldn't we say such that a, that a police officer who, who and a, a legal system, that when you get pulled over for going one mile over the speed limit and you get life in prison, wouldn't we say that there's something wrong with that system? And on the other hand, if God doesn't hold people accountable to their sin and their wrongdoing if all those who commit evil in the world if when i commit evil i'm not held to account i mean if god doesn't do that isn't he then just like a wimp like a teddy bear i mean what would we say about a judge who lets every criminal brought before him off with no penalty somehow somehow yahweh says that he is both just and forgiving at the same time, at the same time, all the time. And, and here's what's really important. God says that, at the, that his name means I'm going to be who I'm going to be all the time, 24-7, which means if even for a moment God stops being forgiving to be a little bit more hold accountable e. Or if even for a moment, God stops holding people accountable so that he can be forgiving, he ceases to be God. 
he ceases to be who he is. So how is it, how is it that God can be unshiftingly, consistently, 24-7, all day, every day, from here to eternity and beyond, as the theologian Buzz Lightyear would say, to infinity and beyond, how can he be both of these things at the very same time? See, at the very bedrock of God's self-revelation, when the God of the universe tells you, yo, this is what I'm like, we should probably listen. And at the very core of the bedrock of Yahweh's self-revelation, at the core of who he is, there's a contradiction. There are two things that seem to be at odds with one another, what I would call a holy contradiction. A holy contradiction which cannot be, cannot be resolved with just human reason and cleverness. Instead, it is a tension and contradiction which God sets up so that only he can resolve it. And he resolves it by appointing someone called the suffering servant. The suffering servant who we meet in Isaiah, Isaiah 53, where we'll spend the rest of our evening. Isaiah 53. Isaiah 53, 1 through 4 says this. Who has believed our message? To whom has Yahweh revealed his powerful arm? My servant grew up in Yahweh's presence like a tender green shoot, like a root in dry ground. There was nothing beautiful about his appearance or majestic about his appearance, nothing to attract us to him. He was despised and rejected, a man of sorrows, acquainted with deepest grief. We turned our backs on him and looked the other way. He was despised, and we did not care. Yet, it was our weaknesses he carried. It was our sorrows that weighed him down, and we thought his punishments were, his troubles were a punishment from God, a punishment for his own sins. See, Isaiah introduces us to this servant of Yahweh. This servant grew up in Yahweh's presence, and through this servant, Yahweh's powerful arm is revealed, which means you would expect him to look good, to look fancy. Because don't we, in our societal moment, equate good looks with power? We've done it all through human history. Ironically, the Lord reveals his powerful arm through an ugly duckling. Somebody that would never really make it on the cover of a magazine, never really be an Instagram influencer. People would be reaching for the dislike button on Facebook if they saw him. He has no beauty or majesty. In fact, the servant is despised and rejected. He is a man of sorrows. But curiously, he's not a man of sorrows because he's just got a lot going on and really needs to see a therapist. And man, if we got him on medication, would everything be better? He's a man of sorrows because he's carrying somebody else's sorrows. He's carrying our sorrows. Isaiah 53 goes on and kind of brings about these surprising reversals. There's this back and forth. Just track with me as we read through verses 5 through 9. It says that he was pierced, the suffering servant was pierced for our rebellion. Okay? Uh, he was crushed for our sins. He was beaten so we could be whole. He was whipped so we could be healed. All of us like sheep have strayed away. We have left God's paths to follow our own, yet Yahweh laid on him, 
the sins of us all. We're over here wandering around. He's carrying the weight of that. He was oppressed. He was treated harshly, yet he never said a word. He was led like a lamb to the slaughter, and as a sheep is silent before the shearers, he did not open his mouth. Unjustly condemned, he was led away. No one cared that he died without descendants, that his life was cut short in midstream. But he was struck down for the rebellion of my people. He had done no wrong. He had never deceived anyone. But he was buried like a criminal. He was buried in a rich man's grave. Isaiah lays out an exacting detail about how all of humankind, everybody in this room, everybody watching online, everybody who will listen to this podcast later next week, every person that you have ever met has transgressed these boundaries that Yahweh, the God of the universe, set up and said, this is what it means to have human flourishing. This is the way that we're going to have order as a human society that relates to me. And we have all of us, like sheep, gone our own way. We have transgressed the boundaries. And the Bible's word for that is sin. The little letter I in the word sin just reminds me that I go my own way. And so do you. We have sinned. We have rebelled. We have done wrong. We have deceived. Did you notice throughout that passage there was this repeated emphasis of the word we, like drawing you and I into the action of Isaiah 53 as if to say, none of us can escape this judgment. Surprisingly, ironically, while we have done wrong, while we have sinned, the consequences of that sin have been applied to the suffering servant. It said that he was led like a, a lamb to the slaughter, and the imagery there is intentional imagery out of this part of God's people. In the Old Testament, when they needed to deal with their sin, they went to the temple. This is the Feast of Atonement. We actually, Steph preached on this this fall. And, and, and what would happen is you and your family, like your dad, would like the head of the house would put his hand on the sheep, and then they would slaughter the little lamb in front of you, this spotless little baby lamb which ironically has become like an Easter decoration, but this spotless lamb and then the blood would be sprinkled over you and that, that atoned for your sin. All of the things that you had done wrong were somehow applied to that little lamb. And actually what Isaiah is saying is that's exactly what's happening. That this suffering servant is somehow carrying the weight of all of the sin in the world, just like the lamb does in the Feast of Atonement. And by the way, we're also likened to sheep, right? It says we all like sheep have gone astray. See, that's not, that's not nice, that's not the Bible complimenting you. Sheep are stupid. They will wander. There's this series of reversals through Isaiah 53, and he's painting a picture, okay? And the picture Isaiah is painting is that our rebellion and our transgression and our sin demanded a price. It demanded punishment. And that punishment should have fallen on us. And yet somehow God has arranged and appointed this suffering servant to take that punishment that we were owed and, and to take that payment, even though he himself has never done anything wrong. This suffering servant, Isaiah says, dies for us and in our place. Even though he's innocent, he's unjustly condemned, he had done no wrong, he had never deceived anybody. The suffering servant is Jesus Christ. The suffering servant is the second person of the Trinity incarnate, walking among us, Jesus of Nazareth, the Messiah, the Son of the living God. And it is through the suffering servant, it is through the life and suffering and death of Jesus 
that the holy contradiction at the bedrock of God's character, that's how God resolves it. He doesn't, like, logic his way through it. He doesn't block out his time to be forgiving here and then, and then just there. What he does is he appoints someone to solve the problem. You see, on the one hand, Yahweh cannot, he cannot let the guilty go unpunished. If he does, he ceases to be who he is, and he can't do that. And on the other hand, he's going to freely forgive iniquity, sin, and rebellion. And he can't not do that at the expense of, the, I mean, he can't stop doing either one of these. So here's what Yahweh does. He appoints an innocent individual who there's nothing for him to be held accountable for. He appoints this innocent individual has no, who has no need of forgiveness to be held accountable for the sin of the guilty people. And by laying the sin of the guilty on the innocent suffering servant, Yahweh ensures that these guilty people don't go unpunished. Because somebody got punished, somebody got forgiven, God gets to be who he is going to be. This is a holy contradiction within God's nature that cannot be resolved by human reason. It cannot be resolved by the big book of Bible difficulties. And that's on purpose. It's on purpose that it is a problem that we cannot solve. So God himself solves it. This suffering servant is Jesus. This problem that is created within God's own nature, this contradiction is resolved by God himself. Jesus dies for us and in our place. And in that happening, Yahweh can continue to be who he is, forgiving and just. And that was a lot of words. I'm not telling you that I'm smart. I'm just saying that I have sat through a lot of classes ex explaining this thing over and over again and trying to get to the bottom and, and reach the deep end of the pool and say, we get it, we understand, and this is how it works. There's a lot of words. Let me just summarize what I just said to you. Can I just summarize it for you? Because let me be clear, let me be concise, because life is short. Here's what Isaiah 53 is all about. Here's the ministry of the suffering servant. Here's the ministry of Jesus Christ. Why should I gain from his reward? I cannot give an answer. But this I know with all my heart. His wounds have paid my ransom. This is what theologians call the great exchange. Because something was swapped. Our sin went to the innocent person. His innocence came to us. The Apostle Paul puts it this way. He made him who knew no sin, sin for us, so that we might become the righteousness of God. God made Jesus who knew no sin, sin for us, so that we might become the righteousness of God. And do you know what the next like 2,000 years of church history are? It is just this exploration of the riches of the wisdom of God expressed in Good Friday. It is this, this idea that Jesus died for us and in our place becomes the resounding anthem through church history. St. John Chrysostom, writing in like the 5th century, says that Christ has saved us by substituting himself in our place. Though he was righteousness itself... God allowed him to be condemned as a sinner and to die as one under a curse, transferring to him 
the death which we owed, but our guilt as well. St. Augustine, brilliant, says, Therefore God loved us, even when we practiced enmity, hate toward him, even when we committed wickedness. And so in a marvelous divine way, God loved us. This is what he says. God loved us even while he hated us. For he hated us for what we were that he had not made. All of these things that we did, he hated all of that in us. But because that wickedness had not entirely consumed his handiwork, listen to this, he knew how at the same time to hate in each one of us what we had made and to love what he had made. Because our sin hadn't entirely corrupted the beautiful thing that he had made, he knew how at the same time to hate in each one of us this thing that we had made and to love what he had made. Fleming Rutledge, an Episcopal priest, just a genius, uh, she says, the accursed, God-forsaken death suffered by Jesus was in some way, listen to what she says, was in some way that we cannot fully articulate the death that should have been ours. This God-forsaken death that Jesus dies was the death that should have been ours. But she also says that this death was in some way that we cannot fully articulate. She says this phrase, we can't fully articulate it. We can't wrap our minds around it. I mean, even this week I'm writing this sermon and I keep writing 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 and I'm thinking, is this getting any clearer? Are we getting anywhere near the bottom? Are we explaining this? But this is what the heart of it is, is that there are some mysteries that we can't solve. There are some things that God does that cannot be fully articulated. I mean, did you notice how Isaiah opened Isaiah 53? Isaiah said, who has believed our message? It's Isaiah's way of saying, you're never going to believe this, so don't even try. At the heart of, of Good Friday is a contradiction that resists being solved in clear and concise ways. Because the heart of Good Friday is a profound mystery. And, and I know, I know we want clear and concise answers. And maybe the, this idea that Jesus dies for us and in our place, maybe that's one of those answers that's clear and concise. And maybe, and it should be good enough for you to carry home in your pocket tonight and say, I think I can articulate the heart of Good Friday, that Jesus died for me and in my place. But do not leave thinking that this totally resolves the contradiction because it can't resolve the contradiction of how God can be fully forgiving and fully just. It can't. This holy contradiction in God's self-revelation is not meant to be resolved. It is meant to be received in faith. This is not meant to be resolved. It is meant to be received in faith. Fleming Rutledge, she's just amazing. She says... Christ does not take our guilt upon himself in any way that could be described in ordinary human terms. It is not logical in that sense that analogies are doomed to inadequacy. Like so much of scripture, the idea in Isaiah 55, 53 that the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. That idea, she says, is poetic truth to be received in faith it is not a statement that we can rationally explain. No, this idea that Jesus dies for us and in our place, it is not meant to settle the question. It is supposed to whet our appetite 
to spending eternity pondering the question. It's the Sam's Club appetizer that makes us say, I want more. It is something to be received in faith. It is something to be received and once received to inspire awe and wonder. Uh, Abraham Joshua Heschel says that the way to faith leads through act of one, acts of wonder and radical amazement. Listen, he says, awe precedes faith. Awe comes first. He says that awe is the root of faith. So my question tonight is, where's your wonder? Where's your wonder? Where's your awe? Where's your wonder? Because that's the invitation, is to wonder and, and, and to awe. And I guess my question is, where's your wonder? Because maybe tonight you're just going through the motions. It's just another long, it's just another Easter and a long line of Easter's, just other Good Friday, and a long line of Good Fridays, and there's some part of your soul that has just grown numb to this. Maybe you're just checking another box, hoping beyond hope that God will stop being so angry with you if you just check this box and perform your religious observance on, like, the big day. And maybe... Maybe you're hoping for wonder for someone else. You're like, no, I've got it. I'm good. Jesus died for me in my place. Settled, done, over. But what I would really like is for my spouse to be wonderstruck. I'd really like for my kids to be wonderstruck. Somebody's going to say to me after this sermon, man, I hope people were listening. I don't care if people were listening. I care if you were listening. See, something really dangerous happens in our heart when we start to experience what God is doing in the third person. Right? I, not for me, but for, but for we over there, right? Now listen, this mystery that Jesus dies for us and in our place is to be received and once received in faith, you're never going to fully understand it. Which is why it inspires awe and wonder. Awe and wonder. <laughs> Long week, holy week, y'all. Pray for me. It's meant to inspire wonder and awe that lasts for a lifetime. And then, guess what? You die, you close your eyes on this earth, and you wake up. Your eyes, your eyes will close here, and your eyes will open again, and you will be face-to-face -face with Jesus. And the awe, like somebody will take the awe dial and just ramp it up. And you will spend forever, we will just spend forever in awe and wonder just marveling at this thing that God did, right? And until then, and until then, here and now, that awe and that wonder, it, it, it inspires prayer and it inspires praise. This awe and wonder leads us to a life of generosity and self-sacrifice, and it ultimately leads us to a life of a radical humility that says, I don't have it all figured out, but I know who does. I'm a hot mess, but I know that I am loved. I am wildly imperfect. 
I am a man of sorrows. I need to go to therapy. It would probably be good for me to get on the pill. But guess what? Like, God loves me anyway. Awe and wonder. Charles Wesley writes this song, and he says, And can it be that I should gain an interest in the Savior's blood? Question mark. Died he for me who caused his pain? He, I pursued him to death. Question mark. Amazing love. How can it be that you, my God, would die for me? Question mark. Awe and wonder. Awe and wonder. Never fully understanding, but always receiving. So, Father, we just uh, hand this holy mystery to you. As the choir comes, they're going to lead us in wonder and in pondering and in reflecting. And we know as, as that happens that you're inviting us to receive. And so open our eyes, um, open our ears this Easter, uh, lead us to wonder and to awe at this thing that you have done, this work that you have accomplished, this thing that you have finished. We pray this in the name of Jesus, who is the spotless Lamb of God. Amen.